So Daniel's uh, asked for more time. The spiritual advisors to the king cannot produce. Daniel says, give me a little bit of time. They have a prayer meeting. Good thing to do. <laughs> if your head is on the line and you don't know what's going to happen, have a prayer meeting, right? Pray. And the interpretation came and Daniel got the interpretation from the Lord. We don't know that he had any experience in dream interpretation. We don't know that he had any classes on how do you interpret dreams 101? Can you take that at a junior college? You know, can you audit the course? No. We don't know that, uh, any of that. We just know that the Lord had given him the ability. It was a spiritual gift that he had given to him. Oftentimes you'll see that prophets are called seers. Uh, and a seer can see sometimes beyond his, his lifetime. And that's what uh, skeptical scholars, so-called, have had problems with the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel predicts future kingdoms. Like, for example, Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. And even a future kingdom, which some Bible commentators have called a revived Roman Empire. We'll get into that tonight. We'll talk about those ten toes. And we'll talk about the head of gold and the chest of silver. And we'll work down the statue. And we're going to get an interpretation. And we're going to see how Daniel predicts world empires to come. And we're talking about major world empires. We're talking about if you go and study history in a secular college, these are the empires you're going to learn about. You're going to learn about Egypt. You're going to learn about Assyria. You're going to learn about Babylon. You're going to learn about Greece, the Grecian Empire, and Alexander the Great. You're going to learn about the Iron Fist of Rome, which really ruled the world for some 500 years, a powerful kingdom. This is how the Bible tells the story, but it gives kind of the center point, the Jewish eye, at least in the Old Testament, showing us the impact on Israel. And so... Uh, Daniel has received the interpretation. This is where we parked last time. We had to wait for it. And here it is. Daniel 2.29, he says, As for you, Daniel, addressing King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, King, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he, that is God, who reveals mysteries, has made known to you what will take place. Now we do see in verse 29, that Nebuchadnezzar was trying to sleep like a lot of us have done. We go to bed sometimes with a lot of things on our mind. We do find out from history that Nebuchadnezzar had just won the Battle of Carchemish. He was coming off a victory. He was a brand new king. He was probably wondering about the future of his kingdom. As we, we see here, maybe he had a late night cup of coffee. Ever done that before? Oh, you know what? I can have a cup of coffee after five o'clock. And all of a sudden, you know, you got a few things on your mind and you start to do the, what we might call the sheet shuffle, right? <laughs> and you're over here and you're over here and every little sound and what am I going to do with myself? And I know they said, you know, when you can't sleep, you know, count sheep. That's not working. Talk to the shepherd. That's better. You know, we all have these restless nights. Nebuchadnezzar was no exception. I don't care what position you're in. In fact, it, it seems like when you have more responsibility, you have more to worry about. So everybody wants all this stuff, right? We want to have multiple possessions of this, and we want to have power, and we want to have this, and we want to have that, and then we get to worry about it, right? So simplicity is not a bad thing. And so the Lord is the one who reveals mysteries, and I love Daniel's boldness. He says, King, you were on your bed you were thinking about things. You were thinking about the future. And God, and he's, in, he's now talking about the true God of the Bible. 
God who reveals mysteries made known to you what will take place. Now you can see Nebuchadnezzar kind of on the edge of his seat. He's been, he's been waiting. He's been threatening people. He wants to find out what this dream means. And it's about the future. And it's about kingdoms that will intersect with Israel to various degrees. The Bible says in Psalm, excuse me, in Proverbs 27:1, don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. In Matthew 6, Jesus said in 33 and 34, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, the things you worry about. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen? So we, we all can get anxious and we start the what if stuff. What if this? What if that? What if this? And we start with our fingernails. Right? Like the typewriter. And we're worried about all this stuff, but we can't control tomorrow. You know, I heard somebody say you can't change yesterday and you can't control tomorrow. So you need to live for today. That's what Jesus said. James, in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there, will engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. Pastor John uh, Nipper spoke at our men's breakfast recently and he put a picture up. It was an older photograph. And he said, I bet you that nobody in this room, there's about 50 guys here, knows who that is. And everybody's kind of wondering, is it a movie star? And, you know, and it was a guy and he was in his driveway and he had no shirt on and it looked like it was from like the 50s or 60s. And after he waited for a while, he said, that picture is a picture of my dad. And my dad died and I think... It was 1963. And he said, you know what? Today, if I showed that picture to pretty much anybody walking this planet, nobody would know who that is. Nobody would know that's my dad. And, and it got John thinking, and he's going to do a future message in the book of James about how our life is. We worry so much about stuff. And, you know, 50, 60, 70 years goes by, and Pretty much everybody walking the planet, except for a few family members who can look back on some old photos, don't even know who we are. And so it brings up some deep questions, doesn't it, about what life really is about. And we see people checking out and committing suicide who have fame and fortune. And we're like, what's going on? Well, it's this idea of the future. It frightens many people. It's, it's something that we have to think about as humans. God challenging the false gods, including the false gods of Babylon in Isaiah 41, 21 through 24 says, present your case, says the Lord. The Lord says, bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. Tell us the future if you're a so-called God. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are gods. Do something to prove that you're a god. In Isaiah 43 or 41 and all the way into chapter 48, the God of the Bible, the true God, is challenging the false gods to predict something about the future. I bring this up because what Daniel 
interprets is a prophecy about the future. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was wondering about. Who can really know the future? None of us can know it for sure, but God knows the future. God's the one. And so God is the source of the interpretation. God is the one, Daniel 2.28, he's the God of, of heaven or the God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Now, Daniel, when he was interacting with the king, may have been thinking about a uh, former man in the nation of Israel whose name was Joseph. And Joseph also could interpret dreams. And he interpreted a dream for the Pharaoh. And Joseph, just like Daniel, gave credit to God. He said, it is not in me, Genesis 41, 16. Uh, it is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And that's uh, when he predicted the coming famine. Now, the dream has to do with the latter days. So Nebuchadnezzar, look at verse 28. It says, there's a God in heaven, chapter 2, Daniel, verse 28, who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days or the days to come. Sometimes you can see the versions of the Bible say in the last days. What's going to happen in the last days? We all have heard stuff in prophecy, if you're a prophecy buff, about the last days. You know, the end of the age, the end of the world, what's going to happen? Micah 4 verse 1 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. That's Micah 4 1. And Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through, also, through whom also he made the world. Second Peter tells us that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things remain as they were, Right? I heard Greg Laurie say one time he was being interviewed and he was on a radio program and somebody called in and began to mock the idea of the second coming. Oh, yeah, right. My grandmother used to talk about the return of Jesus, man. And Greg said he had a moment, call it a Holy Spirit moment, where the Lord spoke to him and said, hey, do you know? And the, and the guy was kind of saying, I don't believe the Bible and all of that. And, he's, and Greg said, do you know that you're a fulfillment of the Bible right now? You're a mocker that the Bible said would come in the last days, mocking the idea of the second coming of Christ. So you're actually a fulfillment of what the Bible says. <laughs> Who, me? Now Daniel says, verse 30, But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. Notice Daniel's humility. He's still very young but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Daniel is quick to say, I want you to know that the source of the interpretation is not me. It's God. Because Nebuchadnezzar at the end of this uh, interaction with Daniel is going to want to bow before Daniel. And that's sometimes what people want to do. They, they take the vessel and they think, oh, the vessel must, must be the source no, the vessel is just a vessel. Daniel's saying, look, the only reason that I got an interpretation and I know your dream and I know what it means is because there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
And you got to love the boldness and the faithfulness of Daniel. He would take no credit for the interpretation. And I'll just say, and I think it goes without saying, but I think it's important to say, that when you are used by God, you become a vessel to lead someone to Christ. You become someone who's impacting other people's lives to whatever degree, whatever measure. We make sure all the glory goes to God. Amen? We are simply a tool or a vessel for God. Now, we can follow people as they follow Christ, no doubt. We want to follow good leadership and all of that, but we make sure we know the source of the blessing and the power is God. He says, it's not in me. God is the revealer of mysteries. Look at verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has to be, all right, let's get through with the pleasantries. Come on, tell me the dream, right? Oh, there's a God in heaven. It's not in me. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Okay, there was a statue. Now, if you take a look up at the screen, Nebuchadnezzar saw this incredible statue of extraordinary splendor. This is a depiction of what it may have looked like. It was Large. It was enormous in size. You can see the, the mountains in the backdrop. And it had these different materials. I think it's five different uh, metals within the statue. And if you had a dream like this, and let's just say that in your dream, all of a sudden, this huge statue just it goes up before you and you're staring at it and there's splendor and light reflecting off it and you're studying it and you're like, what does this mean? And you see gold and silver and bronze and all of this. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He was wondering and it was an enormous statue. It had extraordinary splendor. And the ESV, if you have that version, says it was frightening. It was unsettling to Nebuchadnezzar. It, it freaked him out. And so Daniel continues. He says, he says, you looked, O king, and there, NIV, before you stood a large statue, enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has to be impressed. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a keeper. <laughs> Today, not everybody's going to die in my kingdom. Because Daniel has showed up. Daniel's got game. His God, oh, he appears to be a revealer of mysteries. Uh, scholars have pointed out that the image with the different metals, often called a multi-metallic image, the metals are listed in descending order of value. Gold is the most precious of metals, the head is of gold. It's unique and it's a united whole. But then there's, as it goes down, there seems to be some division or parsing. Silver is less precious. Then you have bronze, less precious than silver. Then iron is the basest of these metals. And then the least glorious of all is the iron mixed with clay. These kingdoms, as you go from the head to the toe, seem to be trading magnificence for strength. They deteriorate to the point that clay is finally mixed with iron. You could say in some ways the image is top-heavy in value. From gold all the way down to the 
the iron mixed with clay. It loses value. You continued looking, Daniel speaking to the king, until a stone was cut without hands, or but not by human hands, NIV, that is not by human power. And it, this stone that was cut out without human hands, seems, seems to be supernatural, not of man. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. So here you are studying this image. If we can go to the next slide, you're pondering the metals, you're pondering the grandeur, and all of a sudden this stone is cut out, but there's no human hands behind the stones, and the stone rifles toward the statue and hits it in the feet, and down goes the statue. Almost like a boxer would call, down goes Frasia, down goes, you know. Here is Nebuchadnezzar kind of just trying to analyze the statue. And then he sees this, this stone uh, cut without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron mixed with clay and crushed them. And the statue, which is so frightening, so awesome, so enormous, so dazzling, goes down in a heap and is turned into powder. Now we know why Nebuchadnezzar couldn't get over this dream. Now we know why he had to call his spiritual advisors in the middle of the night. This, this was uh, something that he would never forget. And when you think of people in the ancient world and they had something like this happen in a dream and it was very graphic and unforgettable. You start thinking, is this an omen? This, this is what Nebuchadnezzar would start thinking. He, he, would, he would be saying to himself, here I was thinking about the future of my kingdom and all of a sudden I have this dream and I'm this great new king and I have an incredible kingdom and things are looking good and maybe the statue has something to do with me but then this rock comes from out of nowhere seemingly and smashes everything. Am I the statue? Is that my kingdom? Is it going to be smashed to smithereens? I mean, imagine all the angles that you could take. That's why he's desperate for an interpretation. He wants to know, how will this affect me? Let's face it, you know, when, when you start breaking down some things about, you know, the future, and, and especially if you don't have the Lord in your life, you, you start thinking about things like this. You know, people will pay big bucks to so-called spiritual advisors to try to find out about the future. They want to know, is there an 800 number I can call? You know, is there someone who can tell me who I'm going to meet later on? Will he, will he be tall? Will, be, will he be handsome? You know, some years ago, uh, Dionne Warwick, you know, she was involved in the hotline. You know, you could call these people and they were, they were supposed to be able to give you the future. And, you know, somebody jokingly said about Dionne Warwick, the only problem with her involved in this is that she doesn't even know the way to San Jose. So, you know, how could you trust her in those commercials? Do you remember the song? Do you know the way? Just, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, we're all, sorry I put that into your brain. <laughs> yeah, la, 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 la. Anyway, let's turn to the book of Luke. Luke 21. Jesus gave what's called the Olivet Discourse, and in that sermon, Luke 21, he does refer, uh, I think specifically in Matthew's version of it, I'm, I'm not sure in Luke's, but to Daniel the prophet, and he makes reference um, 
to the end times and the, you could say the latter days. This is Daniel, uh, excuse me, Luke 21, verse 20. And Jesus says, this is what's coming. When you see, Luke 21, 20, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, Luke 21, 21. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babes in those days. Jesus predicting the future. He says in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. You could say in one sense what Daniel is interpreting is the future of Gentile nations as it relates to directly to Israel. Each of these nations, as we move down the statue, will intersect with Israel and have an impact on Israel in differing degrees. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, 25, and upon the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now we know that when the Lord is revealed in what's called the Day of the Lord, if you think about, if we can go back to um, the picture of the stone coming down for a moment, you think about the fact that Jesus Christ is the rock. He is the stone that the builders rejected. He has become the chief cornerstone. No other foundation can be laid except that which is laid, with, which is Jesus Christ. He is the rock. When the day of the Lord comes, it, it uh, depicts this idea that Jesus will come, the rock will come, and he will rescue his people. He will save them or snatch them up. We, we have the resurrection and the rapture. And then the day of the Lord judgment will come. And it will destroy the world. He will destroy all of those who are enemies of the gospel. He will grind them to powder. He will, you, he will either become a stepping stone in your life to salvation or you will be smashed under him. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. And so this reference to this stone, uh, probably a direct reference to Jesus and the judgment that is coming. And it's coming on a... Uh, Christ-rejecting world. You may remember as we studied the book of Revelation not so long ago that Babylon is mentioned in Revelation 17 and 18. And some people believe that, you know, maybe something's going to happen in Iraq. But there are many who believe that Babylon becomes a prototype of the unbelieving, idolatrous world who rejects God. And you take Babylon all the way back from Genesis 10 with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel, and you can trace it all the way through the Bible. And there are many scholars that believe that when you have the idea of Babylon, and remember, the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar, you have what is a prototype of the unbelieving world rejecting God, uh, worshiping idols, not receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So Jesus says, the Son of Man... The rock, if you will, is going to come. And uh, he says, when these things begin to take place, Luke 21, 28, 
Straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then he told them a parable. He said, Behold the fig trees and all the trees. This is simply a picture or type or metaphor. Uh, don't get caught, too caught up on the fig tree being Israel here. I'm not sure that's the best interpretation because Jesus says in Luke 21, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see, you see it and know yourselves that, for yourselves that summer is now near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, he spoke about Jerusalem surrounded by armies and so forth, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation that sees the things mentioned in the sermon will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that, and that day, or the day of the Lord, come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth, but keep on the alert, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Let's turn back to the book of Daniel. So as Daniel is before King Nebuchadnezzar, he describes this stone made without hands, and it strikes, it struck the statue, and the statue was, of course, obliterated. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Many scriptures I could give you, but I think you get the idea. He says in verse 35, chapter 2 of Daniel, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all the metals that made up the statue, were crushed all at the same time. So when the statue went down, it wasn't in parts or parceled. It was obliterated simultaneously. It became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, the stone strikes the statue and it becomes great. Now, this is where some of our brethren in the Reformed camp believe that the stone or the rock is the church. And they, they seem to zero in on this word became. It became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. So the idea here is, as our Reformed brethren, some that believe that the church is going to be the major change agent in the world, and we would not argue that the church has had a huge impact in the world. Amen? We, we would agree that uh, from the founding of the church, you know, Jesus said, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. And the church has had a great impact. You could say that the church has grown exponentially, Right? I mean, we, we would say that the major world religion still today, although Islam is close, is Christianity in all its various forms and expressions. We won't get into who's a legitimate, genuine Christian. We'll just talk about the basic numbers. The church has had a great impact in the world. And so the idea here is that, well, maybe this, this uh, rock this, that strikes the statue becoming a great mountain and filling the earth the whole earth is the church, but the church has not filled the whole earth with the message. And I don't think it's the church's role to demolish 
the pagan nations and destroy Gentiles. We're supposed to lead people to Christ. But someone might argue, well, maybe this has the concept of obliterating false religion by the truth of the gospel. Okay, that's a legitimate interpretation. Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. It does say that he will set his feet upon the Mount of Olives, and we are given images in other scriptures where there's a large mountain. For example, uh, look at this one because this is very relevant. A few pages back is Isaiah 2. So go back a little bit in your Bible. Go to Isaiah 2 and look at um, Isaiah 2 beginning in verse 2. Isaiah 2 verse 2. There are many scriptures that we see in our Bible that talk about the millennial reign of Christ or the golden age. And this is one of them. It says in Isaiah 2 verse 2. It will come about in the last days. It will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established, Isaiah 2.2, as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. So you can see this idea of the mountain of the house of the Lord. It's chief. It's raised up above everything and all the nations stream to it. Many peoples, verse 3, will come and say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so let's go back to the book of Daniel. You can see this image of the mountain of the Lord. So I think that most in the, what we would call the premillennial camp, we believe that there's a future reign of Jesus Christ that that's going to usher in these prophecies is really having to do with the return of Jesus. Although we know the Lord is using the church, of course, in a mighty way. And so we go back to Daniel 2, look at verse 36. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. Now, the dream has been shared. Nebuchadnezzar is like, yeah, right, uh-huh, okay, what does it mean? What does it mean? Now, if you're Daniel, you're in a very powerful position in the moment. Wouldn't you ask for extra money or a new pair of Nikes or something, right? The king really wants to know, what does it mean? You nailed it. That's my dream. What does it mean? Here's the interpretation. You, O king, Daniel 2.37, are the king of kings. He's called that, Nebuchadnezzar is, in Ezekiel 26.7. He is not the king of kings. There's only one of those. But he is the major force in the world at that time. He's been dominant. You're the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given. He's, remember, he is sovereign. That's one of the major themes of Daniel. He's sovereign. He has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. You, king, you're the king of kings. Now, never gonna, yeah, that's right. Tell me a little bit more. Yeah, I am the king. That's right. Somebody give me a bagel right now. I, I am the king, right? Strength, yes. Nebuchadnezzar, but remember, God has given it to you. He's given the kingdom to you. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who regards you as superior, and what do you have that you did not receive? 
But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now, we'd like to think that Nebuchadnezzar heard the message, but later he's going to be out on his balcony. He's going to be saying, this is the great Babylon that I have built. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bad man. Right? And we know what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. So just because he heard the message doesn't mean he learned the lesson, like a lot of us. The God of heaven has given this to you. Uh, Babylon, represented by Nebuchadnezzar, existed from 636 B.C. to 539 B.C. and then was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. Let me say that one more time. 636 to 539. Mathematicians, that's less than 100 years. Things that look so powerful. Look at the majesty of that kingdom. Look at the power of that person. Yeah, you know what they get? They get a date when they're born and a date when they die and a dash in between, and that's what they get. And then their grandeur blows away with the dust. But maybe they'll make a statue to me in this town. Yeah, but then the statue corrupts and then people show up at the stadium and say, who's that guy in the statue? And nobody knows because it's 100 years later. Not even grandpa can tell you about that player. Oh, he was the great Ernie Banks and he had this many home runs and this many... Not even grandpa can tell the story because grandpa's gone too because his dash is over. <laughs> See, things are temporal. And wherever the sons of men dwell, 38, or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, we can think of Genesis 1.26 when God gave Adam dominion. He gave Eve dominion. He has given them into your hand. Notice Daniel's focus is the Lord and has caused you to rule over them all. You, king, are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar might be thinking, I knew it! I knew I was the gold! Yeah! Now, in the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is going to take this dream very literally because he's going to make a 90-foot colossal statue and tell people to bow down to it. I think he misinterpreted uh, what Daniel was trying to let him know. He keeps trying to say, it's God, it's God, it's God. You see, you're the head of gold. Now, when you're the head, everything kind of flows down from you, right? Headship. I'm the head of gold. Maybe Daniel could have added, don't let the power go to your head, king. Because it's not going to last. And after you, verse 39. Now, I, I was just basking in the fact that I'm the head of gold. Come on, man. After you, because you will only live a certain amount of time and rule for a certain amount of time, there will be another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Now, the kingdom, the first kingdom, that which existed from 636 to 539, is Babylon, represented by the head of gold. Babylon's the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. The nation has been named. It's the head of gold. We work down the statue. There's another kingdom that will arise, inferior to Babylon. And then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. The kingdom that, uh, as we move down the statue, uh, inferior is the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel will be alive when that transition takes place. And then there will be a third kingdom of bronze that will rule over all the earth. What kingdom followed the Medo-Persian Empire, Bible students? 
Greece. It was uh, dominated by a man named Alexander the Great. As the story goes, after he conquered the whole known world, he sat down on his bed and said, there's no more worlds to conquer. <laughs> you can only watch so many TV shows, you know? What am I going to do with my life now? And Alexander the Great died at 33. He accomplished a lot. He was a military genius, but he died at 33. And as the story goes, after a night of a drinking binge. Uh, sad, right? But this is, this is world history. This is what you can learn in a world history class. This man quickly dominated the known world, but it came to an end. The Medo-Persian Empire, represented by the chest and arms of silver, existed from 539 to 330 B.C. Two arms reflect dual leadership of the Medes and the Persians. So you have the silver. Then you have Greece, which is the belly and the thighs of bronze. The Grecian Empire existed from 330 to 63 B.C. It would quickly rule the earth, and as I mentioned, under the leadership of Alexander the Great. And there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. What kingdom is that, Bible students? That's Rome. And Rome began to kind of rise up around 100 B.C. in there. There was a victory in Corinth. And, but I think officially in 63 B.C., Rome ruled from 63 B.C. to 476 A.D., all through the life and ministry of Jesus, all through the life and ministry of Paul, the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the armies of the Romans under Titus Vespasian, and they ruled all the way to about almost 500 A.D. And what caused the fall of Rome was not the church. It was not a military per se. It was an internal, uh, they just basically corrupted from the inside out. You know, you, you watch the movies about the gladiator and all of that stuff, and you can see, you know, they were all into the games. And, of course, you know, some of the emperor, em, emperors were terrible persecutors of the church and did it, you know, sadly for entertainment purposes. And so here you can see why skeptical scholars say, that, well, this is incredible. How could Daniel know about these kingdoms? They're, Rome is some 500 years removed from the time of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, this book must have been written in the second century B.C. Oh yeah, well then how did he predict Rome? They, that's still 100 years from the Roman Empire. You see, they, they, just can't, they, they, they just can't accept prophecy. They can't accept that the God of the Bible is telling us history in advance. And so in that you saw... The feet and the toes. So we have, uh, in verse 40, we have that, that fourth kingdom, Rome. Uh, iron crushes. It shatters all things like iron. It breaks in pieces. This is what Rome did. Rome, uh, it, it was said of them, uh, the fourth kingdom, they had legs of iron. They, they were iron-fisted. It was a, a Pax Romana. It was a forced peace. You, you were at peace with Rome or you did. You don't cross the emperor. You don't mess with Rome. And in that you saw that the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. Now we have a fifth one as we move down. And this kingdom, the feet and toes, it's got 
partly iron, but partly clay. It's going to be a divided kingdom. It will, uh, it will have in it the toughness of iron, in as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery or clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong, but part of it will be brittle. Now this is the mystery kingdom. If we can put the statue back up there. Uh, the mystery kingdom is, who, who is this last kingdom? And this is where, if you read prophecy books of old, they said it's the revived Roman Empire. So prophecy buffs of old were watching the European Union, and they were saying, oh, is there 10 countries in there? Because if there's 10 countries, it's probably the 10 toes, and the Antichrist is coming from the revived Roman Empire, but then the numbers changed, and then they moved away from 10, and isn't that, I don't know, who could it be? And then it was pin the tail on the Antichrist. He, maybe he's the Antichrist. No, did you see his beady eyes? Maybe he's the Antichrist. I, and... Look, we have to be extremely careful. And now prophecy students are starting to look at Islam and the rise of Islam and wondering what will the role of Islam be. And if you look at, and I'm going quick because we're almost out of time, if you look at Ezekiel 38 and you begin to write down a comparison of the list of nations, you have uh, Iran called Persia and you have what most scholars believe is Russia. Could the Ten Toes be a confederation of Muslim nations. You know, Muslim nations don't always get along because there's different strands of Islam. If it was Muslim nations combined with Russia, which is atheistic, then what would you have? You might have strength, but division. You might have a common enemy, Israel. We want to destroy Israel because we have hatred for Israel, but we're not truly united on the other things because we don't agree on ideology or religion. But we have a common enemy. So we won't adhere to one another. We'll be kind of strong, but also brittle. And in Revelation 17, we can see that even the Antichrist turns on the world and destroys people. And so there's much that could be said. You might want to go back and listen to the message that was done on Revelation uh, 17. So as we wrap up, in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, as iron does not combine with pottery. There's going to be some components of this kingdom to come that will not adhere. Someone has put together a sheet called The Story of the Nations. Here's what they say, and what history proves. People go from chains to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency to degeneracy, and back again to bondage. Where do you think the good old U.S. of A. is in that chart? Interesting to think about because many of these nations lasted a couple hundred years and then went away. The U.S.A. of course has a great foundation and we pray that we go back to it. Amen? And we don't wander away. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven, whatever this ten-toed uh, 
conglomeration is, the God of heaven in those days will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. This is what the book of Revelation shows at the end of the book. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put uh, an end or consume all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. This has not happened yet. It's coming for all of our friends who think this happened in the first century with Rome. It did not. It could not be. This is yet future. There's a dual fulfillment, if you will, of this prophecy with the first and second comings of Jesus Christ into the world. And so we can see that when this world power arises against Israel, then God will destroy. The day of the Lord will come. And inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Nebuchadnezzar probably sat back in his chair and went, wow, somebody get me a cup of coffee and an extra cube of sugar, man. I got to think about these things for a while. But notice King Nebuchadnezzar. He fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, and I'm, I'm sure reading between the lines, Daniel, something must have occurred. Daniel must have said, get up. I'm not a God. Don't worship me. The king answered Daniel and said, surely your God is your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all the who? The wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel rose to the top, didn't forget his friends, over the administration of the province of Babylon. While Daniel was in, in the king's court, Daniel became, notice, he became the chief prefect. He became the head guy, the wisest of the wise guys. And hundreds of years later, on a starry Bethlehem night, a king was born. And later, we know our uh, nativity sets are not exactly correct because we know later, Wise men from the east came and they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. How did they hear about the king of the Jews? I think there was a man named Daniel in Babylon who held weekly Bible studies. We know he had a scroll of the book of Jeremiah while he was there. And I'm sure at a local restaurant in Babylon. He said, boys, we're going to study the book of Jeremiah. And then, of course, as years went by, the story was passed down, I believe, or maybe even the scrolls. And wise men, at the time of the Messiah's coming, his first coming, came looking for him. Maybe largely based upon this dream of kingdoms that would come from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire, to Greece, and to Rome. Because if you were a scholar paying attention, 
and you began to count kingdoms and you read this prophecy with a near-far fulfillment, you would say, when we get down to those iron legs, guess what? That rock cut without hands apparently is going to show up. Maybe that's why they knew. Don't know for sure. Could have been other insights that God had given. But the Lord is the one who holds the future. Amen. What's the main message? God is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over your story. Human nations, institutions don't last. What appears so strong in Daniel's day, our day, so intimidating, so frightening, so big, in the big picture is nothing. What do you anchor yourself to? To whom do you belong? Or what king and kingdom do you ultimately serve? That's what I pray you'll walk away with tonight. Father, thank you that even though hard times are ahead based upon this prophecy, we know that your kingdom, Jesus, will last forever. And you are coming. You said, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I go to prepare a place for you. Thank you for that great love. Thank you that we're included in that plan. More than that, we're co-heirs with Jesus, our great king, our great deliverer, our great champion. And Lord, I just want to pray that as we have a few moments here, we're a little over our time, but I, I pray that we would just muse, we would just celebrate, we would just let the word of God go richly into us so that we can just be encouraged and be of good cheer and of good faith and know that we're secure in the one who is the anchor of our soul. Your promises, Lord. You are the rock upon which we've built our lives. If you're not sure you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you've, maybe you've kind of moved away from abiding in him. Maybe you're not sure you're saved. Just make sure. Just trust him. He holds the future. He knows your story. He knows he knew where you would be at this very moment tonight and how he could speak to you. Just trust him. Just say, Lord Jesus, be my Lord, be my Savior, be my King. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. I want to trust you with all that I am, with my past, my present, and my future. Save me, Lord. Make me new. Make me like you. Whatever your prayer is going to be tonight, if you're a saint, whatever he's spoken to your heart. Lord, just have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.